My Seven Chakras, episode 324. The Seven Chakras, swirling vortices of energy, positioned throughout our body, from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras. And now, your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, host and founder of My 7 Chakras, the show where we provide you ancient wisdom inspiring stories and action steps that will help you transform your life so if you're new to our show then i want to let you know that you are at the right place now before we dive into today's episode let's read out our most recent five star itunes review by a listener called ronnie711 who writes my seven chakras has changed my life i can't begin to express how grateful i am for this podcast I instantly felt a connection when I stumbled upon it and it's only grown stronger. AJ you are truly amazing. I feel like you are speaking directly to me. Your positive energy and your vast chakra knowledge is the perfect combination for anyone uh looking to find balance. I have learned so much from you and your guests after our one and one call. I knew I was in the right place. Thank you for your passion to help others. I am so excited to start our chakra sprint program. Thank you Ronnie for writing this review. If you'd like me to feature your review as well, then take a minute or two and share us your thoughts. Go to my7chakras.com/review. That's my7chakras.com/review and write your review and hit submit. All right. So our guest for today is one of the few female Buddhist lamas in the world. and is the founder and senior lama of Sukha Siddhi Foundation. She completed the Tibetan Buddhist 3-year retreat in the Shangpa and Kagyu lineages under the previous Kalu Rinpoche's guidance in 1985 in 1986 she became one of the first women to be authorized as a lama in the Buddhist tradition in addition to Kalu Rinpoche she has studied with many of the great Tibetan masters from all lineages she has a background in comparative mysticism and psychology and as a licensed psychotherapist she's done groundbreaking work in the intersection between spiritual and psychological aspects of our humanity so if you're listening to this it means you're really lucky to be a fly on the wall on this conversation and action tribe please welcome lama paulden drolma so lama are you ready to inspire oh yes for sure <laughs> Welcome welcome to our show really great to have you here and we usually begin our show with some inspiration and i know that you featured numerous inspirational quotes in your book but if there was one that really speaks to you today what is that quote and how do you apply it in your life oh there's so many it's hard to choose but i i took i let me read you this one sure. um that i'm quoting a rabbi david cooper in my book at the core of hope is a leap of faith not that it will all come out right but a faith that holds that what we do matters how it will come to matter who it will come to inspire what positive effect it will have is not ours to know wow 
and 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 how do you apply this particular i guess wisdom in your life these days well i think the reason that really struck me is in terms of meditation so we know that meditation really really helps us when we do it in a myriad of ways but also that the inner work we do various kinds of inner work and meditation and other spiritual practices that it also can have an impact on the collective consciousness of humanity and on humanity you know as a whole so that's why this quote you know really uh, stood out for me you know that and of course on our outer efforts as well in terms of doing benefit in the world and for other beings that you know we don't know but uh, if we put our best effort into it then you know we can have some confidence that in some way it's mm-hmm. going to be a benefit got it got it so action tribe i hope you're listening uh the words that you shared really struck me which is uh, what you what you're doing the actions that you take it really matters and it's true because a lot of time people feel that just because they're doing uh inward work or going inwards or doing meditation they feel like they don't have a large impact in the world around them but the truth is as we're going to learn today that uh, we are all energy and because we are all energy if we send that intention or that uh, in, uh, you know that uh, heart energy like we're going to learn today towards the other people or collective consciousness you will make an impact and that's really really promising so lama what inspired you to write this amazing book which is love on every breath oh i was inspired following our uh last time we in america that we had a national election and there was so much more divisiveness among different kinds of ethnic groups among different kinds of peoples so the divisiveness the hatred for people different than ourselves that's been coming out the last few years really strong in the states and other parts of the world that's what really inspired me to write this book as a a way for people to help people to come to a place of loving kindness for themselves and for all other human beings and realize our equality and our worthiness and and our fundamental basic goodness got it got it uh that's a wonderful wonderful reason to write a book and it's so beautiful as we uh come into this age of uh technology and quick change fast fast change sometimes it can be difficult to handle and because of all this divisiveness we feel that we are separate uh but you know i've i've gone through the book and the meditations that you outline and just the the, the way that you encourage people to think allows them to remember if we are in fact a part of a collective now i'm curious how did your spiritual journey begin could you take take us back to maybe oh, your childhood <laughs> yes 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 actually uh, i don't usually share this but uh this is how it began i was 3 years old and i was sitting in the garden with my grandmother at her home it was quite a large garden and we were sitting there and i remember it was sunny it was the summer i was staying with my grandma for about a week it was a very special for me to get to go visit and stay with my grandparents and so she and i were sitting in the garden and we were discussing different things and we were talking i remember about traveling and about that we both wanted to go to china mm. and i don't know how i knew about these things at 3 but anyway that's what was happening and all of a sudden i lost consciousness 
in an ordinary sense. I didn't lose consciousness inwardly, but I lost consciousness of the outer world. And all of a sudden there were, it was clear blue sky was all I could see, beautiful clear blue sky with seven white balls, spheres of light uh, directly each above the other. So a, a ball of light, a ball of light, a ball, seven of these up above me. And my consciousness went straight up through each of these seven balls, you know, going into the sky in between and then came out at the top. And it was a very blissful experience of, and also experience of not having form in the usual way of having a body. There was just my consciousness going up through these seven balls of light into just into the vastness of space. And and then I just sort of swooned and fell on the ground a little bit. And I remember my grandma saying, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? And I remember thinking, I don't think, even though I dearly love my grandmother and she was awesome, I, I thought to myself, she won't understand about this. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was like a special spiritual experience. It felt really, really powerful and wonderful. And I've never forgotten it, obviously, my whole life. So that was really the first actual thing that happened to me on my spiritual journey in this life. Wow, that's a wonderful, wonderful and really fascinating experience. And, you know, as I sort of imagine what you went through, uh, it comes to my mind that you were pretty mature as a child, right? To think about that your I was. might I not be able was. to. It was sort of like, you know, you're from your past life, uh, you know, having that experience. So that's fascinating. Right, right. yes. <laughs> I think I've been doing spiritual practices for quite a few lifetimes. I had different memories of that later as a child. And it also, that experience reminds me of the name of your podcast, the seven chakras, because I, I've often wondered, was that symbolic of going up through the seven chakras, my consciousness? Right, right, right. Absolutely. And also, I've heard that in certain lineages, you have more than seven chakras, right? So you have certain chakras right. above the seventh <clears throat> chakra. So I was sort of thinking maybe that as well. So Oh, yeah, possibly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Got it, got it. So Action Tribe, if you're watching, if you're listening, make sure that you know that there's a comment box below because if you'd like to ask a question, uh, then add a comment and we'll ensure that your question is featured as well. Uh, so Lama, how did you come across Buddhism? I mean, where were you and what were you doing? <laughs> so I, uh, at a young age, about first I was introduced to um, wisdom saints from all around the world, well, mostly the Orient and then yeah. uh, Western civilization when I was nine. And then a little bit older than that, I was introduced to comparative religion and Gandhi when I was 14 and other great beings. So I began studying in all these various uh, spiritual traditions and practicing and uh, learning meditation in my teens and then got deeply into a daily practice, finally, of yoga and meditation in my early 20s. And then I started praying to meet my teacher. I felt inside like, like my teachers I'd stay with were wonderful, but they didn't feel like my teacher, quote unquote, like my guru. And so I prayed to meet my teacher. And I actually prayed to Mary, who I had a lot of devotion for, the mother of Jesus. And lo and behold, a Sufi friend dragged me off to meet a Tibetan Lama. 
And I was there. It was in San Francisco one full moon evening, many, many, uh, over 40 years ago. And I listened to him for about five minutes and I thought I just knew in my heart, and that has been unchangeable for all these years, I knew he was my teacher. And so I thought to myself, well, whatever religion he is, that's fine. You know, (laughs) that's fine. So that's how I got involved in Buddhism. I'd already been doing some Zazen, but you know, that was this, that was really the entry. And then he invited us to come study with him in Darjeeling in his monastery. And I ended up going to India for the first time. And then over the years, spending many, many um, years, you know, I've been going to India since then over the last 40 years to study with him and, and other great masters. Got it, got it. I mean, it's wonderful that you had this journey where you came across many different teachers. Uh, you know, you speak about uh, Christian mysticism or, uh, you know, studying from uh, Sufi, as well as uh, studying with, uh, um, you know, Jewish rabbi. Uh, and so on that journey, you had this, you know, deep yearning to find your guru or your or or your or somebody who you can learn from, and then it's wonderful that as soon as you came across Kalu Rinpoche, you know, within five minutes it was like, you know, and it sort of comes to my mind, you know, this quote that when the student is ready, the master will appear, the teacher will mm-hmm. appear, and position there, craving and yearning and wanting to find that person or that being that will transmit the wisdom that they need to know in this lifetime. So thanks a lot for sharing that with us. And you've written that Kalu Rinpoche has played a significant impact uh, in your life. So firstly, what sort of influence uh, did he play in your life? And talk to us about that first meeting with him. Because there's a very interesting story that you write about in your book where you had mucus flowing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I've noticed in different spiritual experiences and when I meet somebody who is a very strong karmic connection, you know, undoubtedly from a past life, that I often funny things happen in my body. Like I might burst into tears for no reason or just like no reason, like sobbing and or like when I met him, yeah, all of a sudden, you know, I was just sitting there completely normal. I wasn't sick or anything. And all this mucus, like I start coughing, my nose started running, like just a whole bunch, like instantly. And then, you know, I blew my nose and was coughing and then it just passed. It only lasted a few minutes. Yeah. But there's often, I find when there, when I do meet somebody, I have a strong connection with, there's some physical reaction that my body has and I don't know why, but it almost felt that evening like a tiny, tiny purification. Mm. And um, yeah, it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, he had such an impact on me because, well, him and the other Tibetan great masters that I was fortunate to study with, like you said, from all various lineages, the wisdom was so palpable and so vast and so not about them. I mean, mm-hmm. none of these masters, it was none of them were like in their ego in the terms of that was about them or they were never trying to tell me what to do. They were so incredibly loving and supportive and they transmitted a freedom, a peace, a sense of, I mean, we wouldn't say it in these terms in Buddhism, but like in a more Christian sense, um, the sense of divine union. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that sense of 
absolute vast open emptiness of shunyata completely filled with love and awakened wisdom. So just being in the presence of Kalarimshe and listening to him and, and the other teachers I studied with uh, in the Himalayas, you know, and of course around the world, uh, that's really what was so uh, moving for me. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, so as you were describing it, it uh, it felt as if these uh, people, because of their practice and their dedication to self-realization, almost emit a sort of energy that is very attractive uh, to people around them. And it doesn't stem from ego, but it stems from some other source of energy. And that's wonderful. So you're a Lama, right? So what does the term Lama denote? Because a lot of our listeners are from various backgrounds and they're curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a lama is like a priest or a roshi or a rabbi or a, uh, a swami, but not necessarily celibate okay. um, or like an imam or something. So it's basically a priest. And, uh, you know, mo a lot of lamas teach, not necessarily every single one of them. They may choose to do something else. But uh, oftentimes it's a teaching thing and also okay. functioning like a parish priest or a parish, I mean, a, or a synagogue rabbi or something, or, you know, for a, a mosque for the imam or something. So it's like that. Wonderful. Got it. Got it. And in your wonderful book, you talk about Tonglen meditation. So help us listeners understand mm -hmm. what exactly is this form or this type of meditation. So Tonglen is a meditation where the suffering that we feel in ourselves and that we pick up from other people or feel from other people is transformed in our heart chakra through awakened presence there that we bring in an anchor in our heart. And the suffering is transformed through the awakened love and then sent out either to our human self or to a other being or beings to, um, fill them with love and healing energy from awakened mind. So uh, this is the heart of the Tonglen. And there's, uh, I um, describe eight steps in my book. And any of those steps, the whole practice can be done on the meditation cushion. And you can do, you know, uh, a longer or short sit with that. And there's also an on-the-spot version where once you're familiar with the meditation, any step, anytime, anywhere in life, in 10 to 30 seconds, you can do that meditation wherever you are, any of those steps. So once you're familiar with it, uh, yep. it becomes a very powerful tool in daily life as well as on the cushion. And this particular form of Tonglen is different than uh, people have ever heard of before. This is the first time it's been written down, and it was passed to me. It's a, a thousand years old, this practice, and it was given from an awakened woman who's in my lineage, who's one of the main teachers in the Shampa lineage, and her name was Naguma. Mm -hmm. And she was from Kashmir, actually, and she became fully awakened and was a Buddhist, uh, great Buddhist teacher of her time. And so she gave this practice a thousand years ago, and it's been passed orally. And I received it from my teacher, Kala Rinpoche, and then again in three-year retreat, we practiced it. And I became very familiar, and I, I just love this practice uh, very much. And 
It's a very special form of Tonglin. Action Tribe, what if you could reduce your level of stress and increase your energy by just replacing your morning cup of coffee? The name of this coffee is Lion's Mane Mushroom Coffee Mix by Four Sigmatic. And in the morning, I just add some honey, some cream, and some turmeric uh, to my cup of coffee. And it feels really refreshing and relaxing, especially after some journaling or meditation. And in my opinion, it's way better than regular coffee. And it's much more beneficial. Firstly, because the lion's mane mushroom that it contains has been used by monks for thousands of years for increased focus during meditation. It also contains dual extracted chaga mushrooms which support your daily immune function as well as rhodiola root which helps reduce stress. And because this coffee is made from 100% organic Arabica coffee beans, it won't be hard for you to switch because it tastes just like good quality coffee. So if you consider yourself an action taker and you'd like to try out something fun, exciting and new, I'd invite you to place your first order because they've extended a really special offer for Action Tribe. Receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic purchase. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Action Tribe or use discount code Action Tribe at checkout. That's F O U R S I G M A T I C dot com forward slash A C T I O N T R I B E. Or use discount code Action Tribe at checkout. Foursigmatic.com forward slash Action Tribe or use discount code Action Tribe at checkout. Wonderful, wonderful. So I'm sure our listeners are right now really fascinated to learn more about this particular type of meditation. And as you said, that it might take anywhere between uh, you know 45 minutes to even 30 seconds. The shorter mm-hmm. format of the meditation, which is amazing, because a lot of our listeners. Uh, live in the cities and as you would imagine you know time is, is short and they want something that is a shorter format something that you can apply in their lives as well but could you give us an overview of the eight steps in this meditation just to get a better idea of, right. of it sure so again the eight steps it's really good to um, learn the eight steps and do the whole thing in a, as a sitting meditation in the, in the beginning, and always, of course, it's always super beneficial to do that. But if we do that, then it gives the familiarity so we can do any of the steps instantly in 10 seconds right. or more. So the first step is resting in open awareness. And that is where we just let go of thoughts. And it, it's basic fundamental meditation as people know it. Let go of thoughts, but you just simply open to what is and let your awareness rest with what is. Mm -hmm. And every time we notice thoughts, we just let them go. And we just really let go and enter into direct contact with what is without concepts about, you know, evaluating it like, is this good or bad or whatever. We just wholeheartedly open into what is and let the mind rest. And this is like a reset button and always is a really good preparation for uh, creative kinds of meditation like the Tonglen is. So then the, the next step is uh, seeking refuge in awakened sanctuary and uh, in in the book, I describe how obviously this is a Buddhist practice, and it 
uses all Buddhist, um, you know, terminology and imagery and, but you can also adapt it. And my teacher taught this as well for any religion or for people who are non-religious. So in the Buddhist version in step two, seeking refuge in awakened sanctuary, we call upon all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, our own teachers, all the lineage masters, etc., cetera, uh, from all times and all places. And we call them to be with us and we ask for refuge and if we were doing this as a Christian, we might call upon or another religion, you know, the unseen, vast, you know, ever-present um, God or, um, you know, however it is in our tradition or Jesus or Muhammad or Shiva or Lakshmi or, you know, whoever. So we can adapt this, but I'll talk in the Buddhist sense and then people can read the book to find out all how you adapt it. But so we call on all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, et cetera, our own teachers. And then what this does is they then hold our meditation so that they're transmitting awakened awareness to us while we're doing the meditation. And it also sets up a strong connection for us with awakened presence, which is very hard for us to feel in ourselves but it's easier for us to open to that in another. Mm-hmm. And they also mirror back to us because they see our awakened self. They see our awakened who we truly are. So they mirror that back to us. So right. that's the second step. We ask them to be with us and transmit to us and to hold us in their love. And then the third step is what's called uh, a Sanskrit term, bodhicitta, generating bodhicitta. And what this means is that we feel that, um, that we're entering into our meditation, not just to help ourselves, but to help ourselves and all other sentient beings. And not everybody has the inclination or the time or the capacity to meditate. Mm -hmm. So we do it on behalf of all of us. And we also do it in order to bring all of us, each and every one of us, out of suffering into um, everlasting joy and peace, basically into full awakening. So then that's our our bodhicitta. It's it's called... um, Awaken mind. Awaken mind is that which recognizes that we want to bring all beings out of suffering into awakening. So then step four is um, quite different, I think, than some people are used to, and uh, stepping into love. So this is, and again, I'll use the Buddhist imagery and um, the Buddhist presence of the Bodhisattva Chenrezig, but it can be adapted. So then um, in Buddhism, there's a great Bodhisattva, one who is constantly uh, being in our world in samsara in order to benefit beings and help liberate us. And so this being is somewhat androgynous in Mm -hmm. India. Apparently in the old days, his name in Sanskrit is Avalokiteshvara. And he was kind of female male. And then in Chenrezig, when his 
teachings and he went there. He was called Chinrezi, was male. Then the same being is Kuan Yin in China or Canon in Japan. So, uh, and in China became, was a woman primarily, but with some masculine characteristics. And also when Avalokiteshvara Chenrezi appeared as a woman, there were some masculine. So it's a very androgynous Bodhisattva being. Anyway, we call upon the Bodhisattva of compassion, or it could be Jesus or someone else. And we imagine that that this being, this great awakened being who's constantly um, full of love and compassion is above our heads. And we pray to this awakened being that our own love and compassion, which is infinite, but it's in our hearts. And we're not usually in touch with the full scope and magnitude and profound nature of our own love. So we pray that this will be completely opened for us. And then this great Bodhisattva of compassion dissolves into light, into us. He's really, he, she is the essence of all Buddha's love and compassion. So that dissolves into us. And we feel that we're one with awakened compassion. Mm. And we feel we're one with Chenrezig, Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin. And then in our heart, and I, I have, since we're on video, a crystal Vajra, we imagine in our heart chakra, of course, this is big, a tiny, tiny crystal Vajra of light that embodies and is awakened love. It's actually pure awakened presence, which is innate in all of us, is in all of us. But again, we're not usually in touch with that. So then we imagine that all the Buddha's love and compassion, which is, of course, wisdom, love and compassion, and our own innate love and compassion is appearing as this Vajra, which symbolizes our pure being, our indestructible pure being that's lifeless and deathless, that's mm -hmm. not a thing, that's empty and yet ever-present. So then... That's that step. And then we can also chant the mantra, Mani Padmi Hum, the mantra of compassion, the mantra of Chenrezi, and contemplate our own suffering and the suffering of many beings and develop compassion for everyone in our hearts and, and develop loving kindness for everyone. And then the next step, we start this loving practice with ourselves so we, and this is the heart of the Tonglin that we referred to, you and I were speaking about earlier. We imagine our ordinary human self in front of us. And then over here where we're feeling we're sitting is our awakened self with the Vajra of light that's super brilliant. This crystal Vajra of light is super brilliant. The awakened mind of love and compassion in our heart. And we breathe in the suffering of our human self. You know, we contemplate all the trials and tribulations we've been through, the challenges we face, maybe traumas we've had, whatever. And we breathe that in as like a dark smoke into the heart chakra. As soon as that touches the Vajra, the Vajra emits a lightning bolt, which transforms that suffering into awakened love and healing energy. 
And then on the out breath, so on the in breath, we're breathing in the suffering, and then instantly it's transformed into white light, into pure awakened love and healing and sent back into our regular self. And we then keep doing that on the breath for as many cycles as we like. And then we see our human self gradually illuminated, filled with light, completely healed, at peace, in joy, and then eventually awakened. And this exchange, this transformation of suffering into love brings joy. Mm. And so then we do like that. That's that step. And Usually in the beginning, we recommend people do this practice, this meditation for themselves for a few months, mm -hmm. um, primarily for themselves. Of course, you can also do for others, but primarily for the self, because once our own self-love is really opened and we're able to actually contemplate our suffering and be present with it and then allow it to be transformed, then we have love from the inside out. And our love is more full and complete. Like we're not leaving ourselves out of it. Otherwise, it's actually an ego issue that we don't want to love ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's not our awakened mind that doesn't want to love ourselves. That's yeah. our ego because we have all kinds of ego issues about ourselves. So I talk about that and the psychological issues in that chapter and, and how to work with that some and deal with it and work through it. So we can come to really um, have loving kindness and compassion for ourselves. And then the next step is doing this for others. Mm -hmm. So we start the process with people we love, and we can do it with one or more people, and we include other people that we just are acquaintances, and we eventually uh, work it out to where we even include, and I talk about this and explain how to go about this. We even get to the point where we include people that we really don't like, or we feel like they're really destructive people. Mm -hmm. So there's a way of even including them in our kindness and our love, even though, of course, we don't condone their actions, you know, but like a child who misbehaves, we don't mm -hmm. hate the child who misbehaves we understand that they, they're ignorant and they need to be taught and they need to be, you know, learn how to behave properly. So we can even then include people that we really don't care for or who are destructive and eventually include all beings in our Tonglen meditation. It becomes very powerful eventually seeing all beings healed, illuminated and awakened together. And of course, this, even just imagining this is great joy. Oh, absolutely. That's so <laughs> <powerful>. <laughs> yeah. And um, then, um, so that's the heart of the practice. And then um, again, we, the seventh step is dissolving. And again, after mm. this, we let everything dissolve and come into the heart until there's just simply a drop of brilliant light, our awakened mind inseparable with all awakened mind everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that brilliant drop of light, then that dissolves into space and we rest our mind again in open awareness, inseparable with space. And we rest in formlessness and then the last step is dedicating the benefit, any and all benefit from our meditation. So then 
at the end, we think, and there's various, you know, traditional prayers for this, but it's also wonderful to make up your own prayer and something like, in whatever way people want to, something like, may any and all benefit from my meditation or from my doing this, you know, um, Tonglin practice. May it come to relieve all suffering. May it seek to be a cause for the awakening of all sentient beings. And then that's that's the ending. So it sort of seals the practice and it it offers it to all beings, which expands our meditation's power. When we give it away, when we offer our meditation to all sentient beings, it expands the power and the breadth of it. Got it. Got it. Wonderful. Thanks a lot for sharing. I mean, what I love about this meditation is that it's not just uh, going inwards. There's a lot of visualization that takes place, a lot of creative visualization. Uh, and it's step by step. You, you know, you know exactly what to do at phase of this wondrous journey. It's very visual. I mean, like you've uh, mentioned and you've described to us how we uh, envision our heart as a light vajra, literally a, a, a machine of light <laughs> that is uh, transmuting uh, pain and suffering and the cloudy darkness into uh, an awakened state of energy that uh, not just can be used by us, but also by the world around us. And the wondrous part that you've shared is, and you've alluded to, is that we can't be of service unless we help ourselves, just like in the plane, we put on the oxygen mask first. And not doing so is, as you mentioned, an ego contraction. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you talk mm -hmm. to us about what this really means? What is ego contraction and uh, what does this imply? Yeah, an ego issue. Um, well, a lot of us, especially in the West, in fact, the Dalai Lama, somebody finally told him about this way back in the late 80s or early 90s, and he was completely blown away. It took him years to grok this. Mm -hmm that actually in the West, there's a lot of self-hatred. Mm. That there, a lot of people feel like they don't like themselves. And a lot of us have um, constant or often on self-talk that's extremely berating, mm -hmm. very negative. Like, oh, you should have done that. And why didn't you do that better? And you really got to do work harder. And you're really not that great. And in fact, you know, you failed miserably at this. And, you know whatever, it's just berating ourselves, you know, or, oh my gosh, you know, you, you really laced around today, you didn't get anything done. But it's like a grouchy, condemning voice that we talk to ourselves with a lot of times. And I became aware of this in my own journey because, and I write about this in the book, when I was very young, like 22, and I was uh, did a, a few therapy sessions and just one day as I was leaving the room, the therapist said to me, what about self-love? Mm. And, and then I was just, you know, out the door, but it stuck with me and became a koan. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is that? I couldn't, you know, I couldn't even imagine what that was. And I started to try to just grok that concept. And I started to see all this negative talk in my mind. And so over the years and talking with many people and in watching myself, I've just come to understand that there are all these psychological issues that we have about ourselves in the mm -hmm. West in particular, and of course, in other places too. And so this is not helpful. This is like 
raising a child through condemning them, you know, Mm. and it's our ego and, you know, in technical terms, basically usually the super ego, but it's the e- it's an ego part of us that is berating us. And we mm-hmm. think that's going to make us a better person, but it's kind of like beating the child and thinking they're going to grow up to be a better person. It doesn't mm-hmm. really work. People learn through kindness. People learn through being, you know, having things really explained to them, really thoroughly taught from somebody who's extending kindness. So, this is something that is important for us to work through. And another correlate with this is that a lot of us don't feel worthy of love. Mm-hmm. And again, we have to look at this logically. Each, How are we not worthy of love? Are, is everybody else worthy of love and we're not? Mm-hmm. Or are only people who are saints worthy of love or only great sages worthy of love or only children worthy of love or are only nice people or good per- people worthy of love? It's like, you know, that doesn't really hold water when we really look at it. Like if we look at all the spiritual teachings from all traditions, you know, like in Christianity, they say, you know, each person is a child of God or like in Buddhism, it's said like, Um, each and every being has the innate awakened potential. And in fact, they are awakened. They just don't recognize it. Mm -hmm. That then that all of us in our core, like from a pure point of view, from an awakened point of view, we are already innately completely pure and awakened, but we don't really recognize that. So, So we need to really look at this logically and then and then work through these issues of self-hatred and mm-hmm. that kind of thing and instead you know treat ourselves with kindness and encourage ourselves with kindness and you know i tell people that it's like our our awareness that we become much more in touch with in meditation the unbiased ever present infinite awareness of who we are or that is the nature of who we are, mm-hmm. you know, that awareness is we need to kind of parent our human self with kindness, with wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that is a very uh, important point to mention, uh, especially that we have uh, so many distractions and stimuli from outside these days, whether it's the news or whether it's, uh, you know, social media on our phones, which is much more easier to access. Uh, but all of these different platforms mm-hmm. are reminding us of the standards that we need to get to before we can start loving ourselves, whether it's standards of finances or, you know, our, our body or even the types of relationships that we have, which is great. It's, it's, a, it's good to, you know, always have this standard for yourself and to realize where you need to reach. But like you've mentioned, you can't reach there until and unless you've learned to love yourself because the truth is that you don't need to get anywhere to receive love. You mm-hmm. are love, right? So thanks a lot for bringing this to our attention. Now, uh, you, you write that in this journey of self-realization, we often have an awakened side and a shadow side as well. So what is the shadow side and how do we deal with it? Good question. So shadow by implication, by definition in psychology really refers to 
what we're generally unconscious of about ourselves. Okay. So, for and good things could be in the shadow as well as negative things. Like, say, I'm a gang member and I had to join a gang because at 14 years old, that was the only way to survive in my neighborhood, right? Right. So then the basic ego in that sense is to be a bad, tough guy. Mm-hmm. And that what's in the shadow is I'm actually very vulnerable and gentle and loving. There's a part of me like right. that. So, and then normally a lot of times for most people, and I'm sure for <laughs> most of your listeners, you know, what the normal ego identity is, is you you know, you feel like you're a good person. You're trying to be a good person. You're trying to incorporate, you know, spirituality in our lives and move forward in a positive way for ourselves in the world. So then what's in the shadow is that part of myself that really is like pissed off about whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. or still pissed off at my parents, or it could be in the shadow that I was deeply shamed and hurt as a child. And I feel this shame deep inside myself. And I, I can't bear the feeling of the shame. And of course, as a child, we had no resources or people to help us to deal with trauma. So then, Mm -hmm. you know, it got kind of buried inside because we couldn't process it, it, you know, as a child. So then that shame, that trauma, you know, these are, of course, just different examples, gets buried inside and stays in the shadow. Mm -hmm. So the shadow can have all kinds of different elements in it. And it's unconscious, basically, but then as we all know, it can erupt at times, or we begin through our meditation or through our psychological inquiry to see these different parts of ourself and become conscious of them. Or our friends or our loved ones or our co-workers may, you know, let us know about these parts of ourselves like, hey, that wasn't, that was really mean when you said that to me or whatever, oh, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I yeah. mean, uh, <laughs> especially spouses are good at usually or children at pointing out our faults and failings, right? you know, that we may not see like kids are amazing like that, like what they see about their parents and, you know, (laughs) yeah, kids are very truthful and honest because they don't know anything else. And, you know, I think as a child, one of the biggest uh, shocks that one can receive is the moment they realize that their parents are not, uh, infinite beings right they're and they're not perfect right and I they're mean, not maybe perfect they yeah, yeah realize yeah. that early on but maybe a yeah. little later but yeah. but uh, yeah yeah so so you've suggested that there are sort of three ways in which a person can discover or bring more light into their uh, shadow self one is through meditation and uh, just uh, seeking to understand more about ourselves the second is through psychological exercises so that we can uh, you know dig in and find out more about ourselves and third is through seeking feedback through people that are close to us, which is maybe our family members, uh, our spouses, or even children uh, because of their honest uh, feedback. So that's that's wonderful. And and thanks a lot for sharing. Now, a while back, you mentioned that you've alluded to that there are certain instances where we notice suffering around us. Maybe when we're, you know, waiting in the line at the grocery store or maybe in some other scenario, maybe when a couple is fighting and we don't know, should we intervene or not? Or what do we do about it? And you've suggested that this short version of uh, your meditation can actually help us influence that situation. So how is that? How's, how does that work? Yeah. So, and this is where that 
you know, quote from Rabbi David Cooper comes in. We don't know if it will affect, but, right. you know, and it doesn't mean we don't do physical action or something in the world or words or whatever. But from sure. the inner level, we can definitely always do something. So say we see that suffering in front of us or we hear about it on the news. So say I hear that there's this horrible war going on mm -hmm. in Syria and I really feel for these people. I mean, you know, nobody likes to have bombs dropping on their house day and night. Or, you know, yep. you can't go to the grocery store because you're going to be maybe killed on the way. Yeah. So we're feeling the suffering of this. So in an instant, we can just breathe in that suffering. And it's transformed through this Vajra drop of brilliant light, the awakened love in our heart. And then that love, that healing energy goes directly out to all those people in this war zone. And we can also think the people that caused the war or are perpetuating it, they are so ignorant because they think they are going to be happy through yep. causing war. Mm -hmm. And that is so not the case that, um, you know, they're, karma is going to seriously suffer from this and it's not going to bring them happiness to perpetuate war on other people. So in that way, we can also have compassion even for the people who really, you know, are at fault or started this or perpetuating it or whatever the situation is. And again, we're not condoning or agreeing with our actions. It doesn't mean we're not going to step up and stand up against those kind of actions and behavior. Yeah. But we can also have compassion for them because it's profound ignorance mm. to think that you're going to get happiness through killing people, you know, or abusing people or hurting people in any way. Got it, got it. I mean, this is a great perspective to have, especially if people are across the world and they seem like they're uh, powerless or helpless in influencing or changing a situation, um, you know, across the pond or across the ocean. But the truth is like, uh, even though we might have to take action and we can take action, but we can also send that intention, that heart energy that will in fact uh, uh, help us make a difference. So thanks a lot for sharing this wonderful idea and action tribe. I hope you're listening and maybe even taking down notes. I know many of our listeners drive while listening to this episode, especially in its audio format. So don't write notes now, but uh, you know, hold it in your mind and realize that you are powerful. Uh, so Lama, what is that one action step that you'd like to recommend for our listeners based on all the different things that we've been talking about today? Oh, gosh, I think to a couple of things to initiate a daily meditation practice if one doesn't have it. And to really know that each and every one of us is innately pure being is primordial goodness is wisdom embodied and we we all can discover that within ourselves so that we be you know we just as we enter the journey everybody can awaken everybody you know and whether we fully awaken in this life or not doesn't matter so much it's like all of us can be on the path and that the path of spiritual awakening really, really transforms our life into far more than we ever could have imagined it could be. So Action Tribe, if you are a visual learner and you'd like to read the corresponding blog post, then visit my7chakras.com forward slash 324. 
my7chakras.com forward slash 324. And if you're on your iPhone, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because it'll ensure that you don't miss on any of our upcoming episodes. And we've got some amazing stuff lined up for you. So hit that subscribe button. Compassion isn't some kind of self-improvement project or ideal that we're trying to live up to. Having compassion starts and ends with having compassion for all those unwanted parts of ourself, all those imperfections that we don't even want to look at. Now, this is a quote by Pema Chodron, and this is a quote actually featured in Lama's book. So this is a powerful statement, Action Tribe. And the more you read it, you realize how true it is. While we may have goals, we may have standards that we'd like to adhere to and maintain and reach to improve ourselves. And compassion is a bit different. Like we're learning today, compassion is pointing the torch of light towards areas of ourselves that we have long forgotten because we are ashamed, we have regret, or we just don't like that aspect of ourselves. Whether it's how we look, what happened to us, or some decision that we have taken in our life that we're not so proud of. Everyone has them, including me, I have them too. And the truth is that those unwanted parts of ourselves that you know, that we've been ignoring or avoiding are part of us as well. And in recognizing and noticing and healing that part of us, we experience a shift in our subtle body that can really transform our life. So like we're learning today, have compassion for every part of you, even though those parts of you are aspects that you don't quite like or don't want to remember. So, Lama, talk to us about a time in your life when you experienced a difficult situation or a major life challenge. How did you go through it? And then what did you do to sort of overcome it or come out of it? Gosh, um, I faced a really difficult challenge in my last year, a three-year retreat. And what happened was in there, we were, um, of course, in those days, we weren't doing email or any or the web or anything, but uh, we could get letters and um, that was it. And otherwise we were shut out from the outside world. But I got a telegram saying, and I was, I think, 32 at the time. And I got a telegram saying that my 27-year-old brother had died suddenly. And so this was a, obviously a great tragedy. I had a four-month-old baby and a new wife, et cetera. So... And my family wanted me to come home from retreat. Now, when mm. you enter three-year retreat, which is actually about three years, three months, or three years, four months, usually, or a little longer, it's the understanding that you enter is that you will not leave, that whatever comes up and whatever happens, you will address it and work with it spiritually. And that for this period of time, this you know, in terms of our whole lifespan, hopefully a short part of our life, that we will completely deal with everything um, in terms of our spiritual path. So, and, you know, we won't go running outside to the family. If the family's in trouble, we'll do the inner work and the inner spiritual practice on whatever happens. So, so this is a part of the understanding. So what happened when my family wanted me to come home um, and my son was staying with my family while I was in three-year retreat. He was about 12 at the time, and my brother who died had been his closest uh, male role model mm-hmm. and within my own family and, you know, outside of his dad. Anyway, it was extremely tough for me, first the shock of my brother dying and then the fact that my family wanted me to come. So then... 
um, my Lama instructor in our retreat, I talked to him about this and he was going to go down the mountain from where we were because we had no phone, no electricity. And uh, Kala Rinpoche, my guru, was in France at the time and he said that he would call Rinpoche for me and talk to Rinpoche about this. Mm -hmm. So he did and he came back and he came into my little hut room in retreat and uh, our retreat lama and he said, well, he had talked to Kala Rinpoche. And now I knew that my guru, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that my guru was completely the essence of awakened love and compassion. That I didn't doubt for a sec. But the retreat lama came in and said, well, I talked to Rinpoche and it was like a cold front coming in. Mm. And I said, oh, what did he say? And he said, Paul Dendroma can do whatever she likes, but she agreed to be here for three years. Mm. End of conversation. <laughs> so basically, you know, of course, he was saying I could do whatever I like, but the message was very clear. You agreed to be here and to work with everything from a spiritual point of view and not go running outside to deal with things for this period of being here. So that put me up against the hardest challenge of my entire life because all of my psychological, um, not really, well, my conditioning, but all of my love for my family, mm. all of that was like super in the forefront, along with the fact that my guru, who I also loved with every fiber of my being, was saying, basically saying to me, you know, you agreed to be here. You need to deal with this internally from a spiritual point of view, not go running outside to try to fix it or to try to be a help outside. So mm -hmm. I actually, um, it was like standing on the edge of a huge cliff and looking mm -hmm. into the abyss and knowing I had to jump. Mm -hmm. And I knew that in that abyss was my Lama, my Rinpoche, my teacher, and that as I jumped off the cliff, which was the cliff was standing was all, you know, my psychological conditioning, all my love for my family, everything in me that was screaming, like, I need to be there for my family, you know. Mm. Um, and then the other side, knowing, you know, they will be okay and jumping into this huge, vast abyss of my guru's mind of awakened love. So I jumped. Actually, my body ended up kind of going into shock a little bit. and But I jumped off that cliff metaphorically and processed through everything. And I ended up feeling that the meditation practice I did in those days was very, very powerfully helpful for my brother who died and for my family. And it actually, going through that, and taking that decision and facing it and feeling all the repercussions opened up a much deeper level of realization within me. And the interesting thing was my parents at that point were divorced, had been divorced for some years. When I came out of three-year retreat about 10 months, 11 months later, they each individually said to me, completely separate from each other, it was good you stayed and finished retreat. 
And they recognized out of the heat of the moment that it was good that I stayed and finished what I started and that they made it through that, I made it through, and that in actuality, it wouldn't have helped anything for me to be there. I mean, of course, we would have all felt great being together and I could have comforted my son, you know, right there on the spot. But in fact, they there was all these loving relatives comforting my son, comforting each other. And I was in retreat doing this, you know, incredible, like what felt very powerful meditation on behalf of my brother and family. And, you know, that was um, best that I had stayed. So that was really the hardest thing I've ever faced in my whole life. Well, thanks a lot for sharing that story with us. I know this is something that is, you know, very, very hard to go through. And as you explained it, you were at the precipice of the cliff. And what do you do in such a situation, right? And I'm sure many of our listeners are going through this very same situation right now in their lives. In just one yeah. sentence, what is that one major life lesson that you'd like to share with our listeners based on your story? Based, um, I think overall uh, is that love is the key to everything. Love, engendering love, learning to love is what makes life so much easier and so much more enjoyable. Got it. So thanks a lot for sharing, Action Tribe. I hope you are listening. I hope you are taking all of this in. And I hope you're having a good time on today's podcast episode so far, where we're talking about meditation, um, you know, our energy body and how we can transmute the suffering of others and also learn more about ourselves so that we can awaken. Now, if you're listening to this episode, then it means that you are an action taker. And part of being an action taker is to have this yearning deep down to improve, to change, to grow, to transform your life, right? Physically and mentally and energetically. And with this goal in mind, um, you take action and you seek help and you and you get support and you grow along the way. But sometimes you might feel like the growth is happening too slowly. You might ask yourself, I've been at this for so many months or so many years, and it seems like I've got nothing to show for this. And maybe your husband or your wife might be asking you, well, what now? Are you going to persist? Do you keep at this? Or are you going to do something else and just give up? And people around you might start asking you questions about the direction that you're heading in because there's nothing to show and I know this that this can be hard, but remember that even though uh, you know change might seem really slow, if you're taking action and if you're resilient and if you don't give up and if you if you keep coming back to it, you are changing from within, and that's the most important change that can happen to you, right? From within, uh, because the truth is that you need to have patience, action tribe, and try visiting someone you haven't met for years because they'll tell you just how much you have changed. And this again is a quote from Lama's book. Uh, because just like Nelson Mandela once said, there is nothing like returning to a place that remains unchanged to find the ways in which you yourself have altered. So change is happening. Just be patient. So with that, we have reached the last round for today, which is the wisdom round. Four quick questions so that our listeners can get a dose of wisdom to act on. So Lama, what is the best piece of advice? that you've received in your life? Ah, um, I think it was that what my therapist said to me about self-love and contemplating that because 
I've really found that has been the key to being a happier human being and to actually being able be able to love and others and to find a wellspring of well-being and inspiration, enthusiasm, and all of that within my own heart, within my own body. And, you know, so I think for me, that's been the most profound. Got it. And if you could turn back time and go spend one hour with someone who is um, living or even dead, who would it be? Well, I'd have to say that would be my teacher, Kala Rinpoche. And I do feel connected to him on the inner subtle plane, but it would also be wonderful to see him in person and have an hour to share and talk. Got it. And so what is that one thing you do in the morning or maybe in the evening before you go to sleep that has improved the quality of your life? Uh, well, is it's really to connect with my gurus and awaken presence and just to open into what is with no judgment and to be with that and to bring loving kindness to it. And so connecting with what is and also recognizing that in what is, is also all these awakened beings who are, or we could say, you know, God, who's always depending on our, you know, religious orientation, but that's it, ever present, like God or the awakened beings, however we're going to language that, they are ever present. And they're always with us. So we open to what is, but it's not just a dry, vast, dead, boring, horrible what is, you know, as well as we see all the ups and downs and everything. But we can also in that connect with the awakened or divine presence. So doing that has really benefited me a lot. Wonderful. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would that book be? Well, uh, from the Tibetan tradition, I would recommend a book called Rainbow Painting by Toku Ergen Rinpoche. So mm -hmm. Rainbow Painting, quite a wonderful book. Yes. Got it. So we'll have that in the show notes. Action Tribe, would you like to receive one book for free, an audio book? Because audible.com, as you might know, is offering Action Tribe one free audio book download with a free 30-day trial so that you can try out this new way of consuming books. Because the truth is that listening is the new form of reading. And the fact that you're listening to this episode proves my point. So if you'd like to start listening to books and trying out these audible books, which are so amazing, go to my7chakras.com forward slash free book. That's my7chakras.com forward slash free book and choose your favorite book to start listening. Uh, so Lama, thank you so much for spending your time on our show and sharing all of this wisdom and actually explaining to us how this amazing visual and step-by-step -step meditation works so that we can transform our life. And, oh, you're uh, so welcome. A pleasure to be with you. And before you go, tell us one thing that you're grateful for and how we can find you online. Oh, okay. So, oh, I'm just grateful that we have this amazing life and that we have each other, that we have friends that you and I were able to talk and share this morning and with your listeners as well. So I'm grateful for all of that. And also to let your listeners know my book, um, this love on every breath okay. is um, uh, also available on audio at Amazon and 
My website is lamapalden.org, L-A-M-A-P-A-L-D-E-N.org. So they can connect with me there. And there's some freebies and there'll be a link to listen to this. And so uh, you can find out more about me and connect there. And it's a delight speaking with you this morning and being with your listeners. Awesome. So we'll have all these links up in the show notes um, and so that people can, you know, take the next steps and get this book because it's an amazing book and really, really informative. If you've listened so far, Action Tribe, it means that you're really enjoying today's episode. If you feel different, if you feel optimistic, then consider supporting our podcast uh, because we really, really depend on you to create mm -hmm. more episodes and produce this amazing stuff on our show, the link you need is my7chakras.com forward slash support, my7chakras.com forward slash support. It's completely safe and secure. If you're on Instagram, then take a screenshot of this episode or take a photo of you and tag me so that I can share your story with our community. My handle is at my7chakras. That's at my7chakras. And finally, if you have a question, comment, observation, experience that you'd like to relate or share, my email is aj at my7chakras.com. That's aj at my7chakras.com. So Lama, thank you so much for coming on our show, talking to us about your story, the difficult and the amazing moments of your life, explaining to us about Buddhism and uh, the journey that you went through and taking us one step closer to a human revolution so that each of us can realize that Buddhahood is within our grasp and is there for all of us. Thank you so much. A, a pleasure. Thank you for listening to My 7 Chakras at My7Chakras.com. That is My S-E-V-E-N Chakras.com. <laughs>